Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and what do you know, uh, tomorrow marks the end of another week. I must say, these uh, weeks seem to go by very fast. I don't know why, but they really do. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I don't know. Uh, I guess that would be up for us to decide. Of course, I do know that if you're um, on vacation and your uh, vacation time, wherever it is um, you are, whether it's uh, traveling or uh, doing what's called a staycation where you're at home and maybe taking a day trip or two, uh, regardless of of how one uh, chooses to pursue their time off when they have it, the time itself does go by quick, but it's up to us as to how we choose to make the most of the time that we do have off. And it's not just so much when we do have off, but uh, but when we are, say, working uh, during a work week and what we're able to um, get done, um, whether it's uh, general tasks or um, doing um, hobby-related work like podcasting. One way or another, um, something does... Uh, Something can come uh, good out of the end of the tunnel, uh, depending on how you choose to um, carry out the um, mission before you. Well, I know this much. We've uh, really uh, covered a lot of ground based upon this uh, podcast uh, book topic series. I'm really pleased to see that many of you all have um, taken an interest, not just so much in the topic, but learning more about this uh, incident and as I've said before, and I'll say it again, we've obviously been able to prove that we've been able to debunk what the textbooks told us years ago. Of course, the textbooks wanted us to believe that um, what happened on the night of March 5th, 1770 was an, iso- was an isolated incident and that protesters or those whom were assembling to petition and gather uh, were being mistreated by um what they would have called in their eyes an evil empire, being that of the uh, British uh, military. But I think it's fair to say that um, a lot of myths that have been around for some time have uh, been proven wrong, not just in what we're currently discussing, but even uh, through documentaries, through books that have been written, and just uh, programs in general that uh, we can uh, watch on television pertaining to uh, events, or I should say greater events, uh, surrounding the American Revolution movement, most notably with this uh, infamous incident being the Boston Massacre. Now, in this uh, podcast uh, segment to the Boston Massacre of Family History, we're going to learn, or rather I should say, we're going to have to go behind the scenes and learn about um, the plans that General Thomas Gage had in store for uh, troop relocation movements. In other words, there are obviously more than uh, one, or I should say two regiments in Boston, but General Gage did in fact have uh, game plans lined up to go about modifying the current situation. So in other words, we're going to have to find out for ourselves if in fact General Gage worked above and beyond to try to avoid an all-out deadly conflict in Boston. He knew that the people of Boston were volatile, but at the same time, it's it, maybe it's fair to say that General Gage, 
of course, he would not want to admit this out in the open, but it's probably fair to say that he uh, has to realize deep down that there probably are, in fact, uh, many of Boston's locals whom have uh, established some kind of um, peaceful relations with uh, the regiments. But, of course, for General Gage, getting too close to the uh, locals is never a good thing because, as we've learned already, when British troops get too close with the locals, what, what happens? Desertion. And when you have desertion, uh, a, uh, what do you call it, search, uh, search rescue parties or let alone uh, search parties have to go out and find those whom have uh, deserted, which can cost money, and not just capture those whom, whom have uh, deserted, but by bringing them back and, and, as we've learned, engaging in punishments that that many would come to realize at that time in their eyes was viewed as uh, cruel and unusual. And I'm beginning to wonder that when we uh, view something as cruel and unusual, down the road in the late 1780s when the framers, uh, or I should say our forefathers, gathered in Philadelphia to um, revamp the Articles of Confederation, of course, some of our forefathers will want a Bill of Rights, but that has to wait a few years later, after 1787, and what do you know? 1791, uh, the first ten amendments, a.k.a. the Bill of Rights. Uh, one of those amendments, being the Eighth Amendment, is the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. So, what do you know? Uh, yes, General Gage is one who is um, big on order, but he also is one who... Uh, does not believe in um, desertion. He does not believe in um, locals and troops intermingling with one another. Another thing we'll uh, mention briefly that, well, I'll mention it briefly here, but, um, but we're going to get to the hard core of it, of the matter. We're going to uh, get a full in scale, full in-depth analysis, I should say, uh, pardon me for the uh, incorrect uh, wording there, but we will get a full scale in-depth analysis of how everything unraveled on March 5th, 1770. So here we go, folks, with another episode segment to the Boston Massacre, A Family History by Serena Zabin. So here's our first leadoff question. Despite 11-year-old Christopher Sider's tragic death on February 22nd, 1770, coming at the expense of a customs official's alleged self-defense stand, had British troops refrained from firing upon Boston's townspeople? Okay, we you know we learned from the last podcast episode that a customs official did take matters into his own hands by firing a shot with the intent on getting the uh, angry crowd to disperse, and little did he know that he shot um, a young boy. Of course, we would think of as a grown-up back then, given that life expectancy wasn't high, but he shot a young boy uh, who sadly died later that night. Of course, uh, sadly, the royal court, uh, or the royal government, decided to give uh, Mr. Ebenezer Richardson a pardon, even when they found him guilty early on. Uh, it just made no sense that they decided to give him a pardon, and that just fueled the fire. But the irony to it is that, okay, this customs official, yes, he, he fires into the crowd and kills an 11-year-old boy, and the royal government claims it was done out of uh, self-defense. But at the same time, 
what have British troops done differently compared to what uh, customs official Ebenezer Richardson did? Well, they, they have, in fact, done the opposite. The British troops have not um, partaken in any incidents, or ra rather, I should say, there have not been any incidents involving uh, soldiers firing into the crowds of townspeople. I think that's a great thing. Yes, there has been tension, but luckily there has not, there has not been anything that has uh, uh, resulted in um, such bad blood or bad um, tensions to where they've escalated and the thought of uh, someone wanting to fire upon people could in fact be a reality. Now, um, the summer of, 16th, of the summer of 1769, including the start of 1770, led General Thomas Gage, along with his supervisors, from the War Office to believe they could escape Boston without partaking, or I should say engaging in unnecessary violence, or I should say unnecessary use of force. It just so happens that in summer of 1769 and going into the very beginning of 1770, there is a lot of hope. There is potential that we just might be able to dodge some bullets, given what we've already been through. June of 1769 saw General Gage write a letter to the War Office requesting the removal of two regiments, being the 64th and the 65th. July 1769, one month later, the War Office responded by agreeing to remove more than two regiments, being four total, but in the meantime, they have to focus on um, getting the 64th and the 65th regiments out of Boston. The 64th was currently in town, meaning they were in the heart of Boston. The 65th was stationed at Castle William. Each regiment, each of these two regiments, I should say, was, were due to return to Nova Scotia. In July of 1769, this did in fact happen. The 64th and 65th regiments departed Boston, including every woman and child, or I should say all women and children, whom, uh, whom were uh, comprised of those regiments, given that their um, husbands, or in the case of the children, their fathers, uh, were in those uh, regiments. They all, everybody uh, from those uh, regiments, soldiers, wives, and children, all departed uh, Boston per both units, and believe it or not, in the summer of 1769, Governor Francis Bernard, Massachusetts Royal Governor Francis Bernard, he too departed from Boston for London. So we have a lot of coming and going now, folks. Well, I would say more, uh, the greater side is the going part. There there really isn't a whole lot of uh, coming just yet. Is that a good thing? I, I don't know. But I do know that there are changes being made, and this probably will please uh, most of the uh, radicals in Boston who never even liked the thought of the British troops even having to come, on to, come into their town to, to begin with. So, Governor Bernard, yes, he departs uh, Boston uh, for London in the summer of 1769. There were plans being made by the Secretary of War, including General Gage, to relocate the 29th and the 14th regiments to new locations or settings. 
I'm sure some of you are thinking new locations or settings. Does that mean are they going to be um, relocated outside the town of Boston? Uh, will they eventually go back to Nova Scotia, where they um, where they originally were prior to um, coming by uh, vessels 400 miles uh, south to Massachusetts? Or will they go back to Ireland or somewhere else? They're all good questions, but we're going to have to we're going to have to dig a little bit uh, further. Now, General Gage's overall plans, or I should say, his intentions, were to move the 29th and the 14th regiments out of Boston for good. You know, I didn't really know any of this in terms of General Gage's plans or his strategical plans until having read this book. So we do have to give General Gage some form of credit for trying to make a good faith effort in doing whatever it, whatever was necessary to um, modify, or I should say uh, prevent the worst case scenario from happening. So we've already got two regiments um, whom have left um, Boston for good. But his overall plans or intentions are to move the 29th and the 14th regiments out of Boston. But before he could take action regarding the remaining presence of troops within the town, General Gage does have to, um, he has to factor in some other things here, folks. He has to consider the current situations involving regiments stationed elsewhere throughout the greater uh, British Empire. So in other words, folks, we have British uh, troop regiments, you know, down in the Caribbean, or I should say in the West Indies. We have British troop regiments all the way in India, or what we would think of as the Far East. We have uh, other British regiments that could be in, um, in Ireland. Uh, just to give you an example of where they uh, would be uh, stationed. So, you know, it's not like, you know, General Gage can call up and say, hey, um, how soon can you get some ships um, to sail 3,000 miles across the ocean? Or how soon can you get a ship or two from uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia to come down um, to uh, Massachusetts to um, pick up everyone from the 29th and the 14th regiments and get them um, to their new destination. It just it just didn't work like that, folks. But the big dilemma now is that um, while, yes, he does want to get all the troops out, that is the regiments that are left in Boston being the 29th and the 14th, he does have to consider the current situations involving regiments stationed elsewhere throughout the greater British Empire. So, this is going to take, you know, some, um, hey, how do you call it? It's going to take a lot of logistical um, networking. So General Gage does consult with um, soon-to-be outgoing uh, Royal Governor Francis Bernard, and he asked uh, Governor Bernard his opinion as to how long the remaining uh, leftover of troops with, within the 29th and 14th regiments ought to stay in town. Governor Bernard and Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, whom would soon become the interim governor, in other words, he would be uh, taking the place of uh, Governor Francis Bernard, 
Thomas Hutchinson uh, would assume the new um, position of interim governor come July of 1769. Well, it turns out, folks, that both uh, Hutchinson and Bernard both unanimously agreed that the 29th and the 14th regiments must stay put in town. They must stay put in town until further notice. So this is, I mean, in other words, Governor General Gage has asked for um, for some opinions. Is that a bad thing? No. But at the same time, you know, Governor Bernard, he never really could uh, face reality as to coming up with his own strategical plans on how to uh, modify the situation, not just so much with the troops there, but how to um, make things better. Apparently, he didn't want to have a whole lot on his plate. It might be fair to say that Governor Bernard was not big on conflict, but yet he didn't know how to resolve the internal issues uh, facing um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony from within especially with the presence of uh, the British troops. So, yes, it's there's nothing wrong with General Gage asking for opinions, but at the same time, one has to wonder, well, what if General Gage had not asked uh, Governor Bernard's opinion, and including that of Thomas Hutchinson? Well, one could say that, one could say that okay, if um, General Gage hadn't asked for their opinions, that there might have been a, a good likelihood that that the troops would not have uh, needed to have stayed in Boston any longer. But at the same time, it's very fair to say that both Hutchinson and Bernard would have um, seen to it left and right that um, they would have seen to it left and right that had the troops left, then then who would have come away victorious? If in fact the if in fact the troops had left, um, come the start of 1770, that is the the remaining troops, um, the townspeople, uh, the radicals most notably. So in other words, um, by keeping the 29th and the 14th uh, regiments remained in place in town, the 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 greater intentions were to keep the current uh, state of uh, power towards the government versus the townspeople. If the power is opposite, then the townspeople, in other words, we could say mob rule. In other words, the unruly crowds will be the ones dictating the show. You know, people, some people are probably already saying that, you know, it's bad enough if we're dealing with one tyrant 3,000 miles across the ocean. It's probably fair to say that if you are a Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson or a Governor Francis Bernard, what would be the biggest fear? To have 3,000 or more tyrants running the town of Boston. In other words, the radicals taking over to where not only they have authority, but keep but shutting everybody else out who does not share their views. So this is a delicate situation now here, folks, as to how to go about maintaining order and keeping the power of ba the balance of power in the hands of the um, the government, that is the the British government and the troops versus the townspeople. 
There is a neg there is a, a bad side to this also. The longer there remained a presence of troops in town, the greater the likelihood where regiments and townspeople could confront one another, resulting in unpleasant outcomes. Well, I think it's fair to say that even when the troops arrived in October of 1768, there there was always um, concern about the about the fact that there could be some kind of likelihood or some kind of chance or unforeseen um, likelihood that regiments and townspeople would confront one another in hostile um, in, in hostile ways. Uh, one scenario, or let alone I should say not just one scenario, but we have a couple of scenarios here where where each day, well for starters, each day did present a different challenge. In other words, maybe it's fair to say that the British troops could expect, could automatically expect that there would be no two days alike. One day could be peaceful, where both sides did favors for one another. Okay, both sides are nice. You know, they are getting to know one another. Um, you know, a local, a local Bostonian could be showing um, a group of soldiers in the 29th Regiment where to go um, to get a drink in terms of where's the nearest tavern. Or where would they go um, to purchase some uh, merchandise along, um, say, along uh, Boston's um, wharf, uh, not far from Fanul Hall? So those kinds of connections right there, or, or those kinds of uh, peaceful settings. On the other hand, British uh, troops could expect anything unexpected. For example, like what happens if one day... What happens if on one particular day there is a brawl, a fight, because of an inappropriate remark made? In other words, it just it doesn't take much to um, piss someone off, but if you say it to the wrong person, if, if someone on one side says something to someone else on the other side, expect the unexpected. Expect fists. Expect, you know, people's fists to be, um, to be going after one another. Expect, you know, blows. And then once all this happens, who's going to be held accountable? Who's going to get punished? Maybe both sides should be punished. But the bottom line is that for these troops, they don't know what to expect uh, from one day after another. But even after 1768, or I should say October 1768, there are still a lot of um, uncertainties. And obviously what General Gage is trying to do is that He's, uh, he's gotten through some rough patches, and knowing that there have not been any civilians whom have, whom have died uh, going into late 1769, and including the very beginning of 1770, very beginning meaning January, we, we can say, now is your opportunity to make some moves before, in order to avoid the all-out worst-case scenario. Now, it just so happens, too, that um, Boston um, patrolmen, or I should say guardsmen, often found themselves breaking up fights after dark involving both soldiers and townspeople. The guardsmen took proficient notes. In other words, they recorded all incidents of improper nighttime conduct involving military officers. In July 1769, a private by the name of John Riley of the 14th Regiment got into a brawl with a Mr. Jonathan Winship, 
who uh, was a butcher from Cambridge outside of uh, Boston. Of course, uh, Cambridge is where Harvard is located. For um, Mr. Winship, he was uh, a butcher whom provided the 14th Regiment with uh, fresh meat. It just so happens that Private Riley and um, Mr. Winship, the butcher, knew one another, but they were not on friendly terms. Both men exchanged um, making improper comments, or I should say remarks about one another, where neither man apologized to the other. So it just goes to show that even when you're um, not uh, within a regiment, I mean, yes, there could be some conflict within a regiment, but it also goes to show you that even those individuals who whom provide essential um, goods to a regiment can often find themselves at conflict either with a commanding officer or with a um, even with a low-ranking officer or or with um, soldiers in general within a regiment. So so just because you're the head supply guy, it doesn't mean that you're always liked by everybody from within a regiment. Could men whom lacked uh, specialized or I should say formal uh, training find temporary work per multiple rope-making factories within the town of Boston. And remember, folks, given that Boston is located along the water, and the port of Boston, I can't imagine how many um, individuals are employed uh, through working at the port of Boston, but I do know that one of the trades is rope-making. Well, think about it, folks. You know, rope is used for so many things. You know, of course, when I think of rope in the 18th century, I think of... Um, with the wooden ships and the rope that would have been um, that would have been uh, built or not so much built but made to um, to hold together the uh, sails that would have been um, raised high above to where um, to where uh, the ships could get favorable winds and would be able to navigate the waters freely uh, because of those favorable winds but the sails um, attached to the masts uh, helped uh, propel uh, the ships to um, be able to move uh, along the waters. So rope making is something that there can never be a shortage of, but uh, the answer to this question is um, yes. So, you know, people did not have to have um, formal training just to find temporary work given that there were so many uh, rope-making factories within the town of Boston, but it just so happens that in early March 1770, one rope-maker did offer a British soldier work requiring no, sets of, um, requiring no set of skilled labor. Being, It wasn't uh, making rope, folks. Okay, so if this um, soldier is not there to make rope, and I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, why in the world is he even there? Yes, he's probably desperately looking for some form of temporary work. But guess what the, um, the rope maker is going to have him do, folks? He's going, to ask this, he's going to tell the soldier that if he wants to work, how about doing this? Why don't you clean out my latrine? In other words, go clean out my outhouse, folks, a.k.a. my bathroom. Well, the soldier was deeply offended and he got so offended to where he and this uh, particular rope maker got into a heated argument. And this heated argument intensified not just um, 
not just per the day that the incident happened, but it intensified to where the argument lasted uh, multiple days, resulting in each side bringing extra backup into the existing dispute. Hang tight for just a moment. Well, you know, it's easy to think that disputes last just one day, and then after the end of the day, grown-ups can put aside their differences. Well, it just so happens in 1770 that wasn't always the case. Now, this incident did, um, we could say in, it, back then it would have made the regional news, or I should say more so the local news, but it just so happens that multiple witnesses per this particular incident, told uh, different versions, or I should say stories behind what had happened. But if there was one thing that everyone agreed upon, was that trouble, in general, had been coming for some time. Gosh, you know, the word trouble here sounds a little vague. Exactly what kind of trouble has been coming for some time? Well, some people and one on one camp that is on one side, were convinced that uh, perhaps the reason why this incident occurred involving the British soldier and the rope maker, it had to do with the rope maker perhaps being very um, hostile about um, the taxes that Parliament had imposed uh, three years earlier in 1767, taxes that would be placed on items like tea, lead, paint, paper, glass, via the Townshend Acts. Many did not take kind to the Townshend Acts because, like the Stamp Act and the Sugar Act before it, the Townshend Acts were another example of um, improper consent. Yes, we could say taxation without representation. Uh, yes, we could say that because um, the colonists, once again, did not feel that they were being properly represented 3,000 miles across the ocean and that they simply did not have a voice. So, yes, for the rope maker, you could say that he would have, um, he still would have been, uh, I guess, hell-bent on from what had been done three years earlier. The other camp um, felt that, um, the other camp felt that, um, they became convinced that the death of 11-year-old Christopher Sidair at the expense of uh, custom official Eb Ebenezer Richardson had helped fuel further fires between soldiers and townspeople. Well, the problem here, folks, is that many of these uh, radicals don't realize that the soldiers did not tell Ebenezer Richardson to kill Christopher Sidair. It doesn't make it right that Ebenezer Richardson took matters into his own hands, by uh, firing directly into the uh, mob crowd, and little did he fail to even realize that by the time he fired, not everybody had been able to disperse like he wanted them to. And sadly, uh, an 11-year-old boy's life was taken. So the sad part is, is that the radicals did not want to acknowledge the fact that the soldiers did not tell uh, Ebenezer Richardson to uh, fire into that unruly crowd from uh, February 22nd of 1770. Come February 1770, or I should say the start of uh, February 1770, prior to Christopher Sidair's death, did Boston's uh, social environment go unchanged between soldiers and civilians? Believe it or not, folks, it's still um, 
intact, so nothing has changed, but it could be fair to say that within a short period of time, some things will change. So, come February 1770, uh, one unique example here was uh, Boston merchant John Rowe, whom we learned about early on. He and his wife Hannah uh, had gone about hosting a dance for their 16-year-old niece, which was attended by seven army officers. It just so happens that one of those officers was none other than a captain by the name of Thomas Preston of the 29th Regiment. Pay very careful attention because his name's going to get mentioned a lot more uh, before the end of this episode is over with and going forward uh, for the remainder for the remaining duration of this uh, podcast book topic series. But shortly after Christopher Sidair's uh, death, would things forever change in Boston, most notably amongst the troops, the troop commander of the regiment, and the townspeople, or I should say civilians? Late February... 1770, uh, saw a jeweler by the name of John Wilm and his wife, Sarah, have, uh, have, or I should say, host multiple soldiers in their North End home. Little did they think, like um, Boston merchant John Rowe and his wife, Hannah, little did they think that even after... um, the death of 11-year-old Christopher Sidair, while um, as tragic as it was, little did anybody know that just shy of two weeks, there would be more bloodshed, there would be an all-out incident that would even have more uh, profound effect on um, how... um, on how the uh, greater uh, relations amongst the townspeople and the soldiers and the presence of, uh, of the British Army, I should say, uh, would last uh, going forward. So it might be fair to say that uh, by February 1770 and just before, the end of, just before the end of February of that year, that perhaps the overall society of Boston and the overall um, relations are hanging by a thread. But it's going to take an incident. I mean, Christopher Sidair's death, was just the 101 um, was just the 101 mark, but it's going to have to take something beyond 101 to really make things very very bad. How about this question? Were women around Boston intimidated by acts of violence going into the winter of 1770? No, they weren't. How about a lady named Eleanor Park? She was a soldier's wife. And she was present at Mr. and Mrs. John Wilms' house late, 17, late February 1770. She was opposed to the idea of retreating from Boston and went as far as openly supporting the role of partaking in violence against the presence of British troops. Well, for a woman to openly come out and say, hey, I support uh, mass protests and I support anything that would that would involve uh, getting those Brit- British troops off my, um, off my uh, property or um, pr- support any kind of measure that would um, result in their removal, I'm all for it. I think it's fair to say that um, Eleanor Park is a radical. In other words, she's in the same camp 
as uh, prominent Sons of Liberty individuals like uh, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, uh, James Otis. Yep, they're all, she would definitely fit their uh, mold or criteria, I should say. Early March 1770 saw two women, a local Bostonian and a soldier's wife, each exchange threats towards each other. You know, for me, well, rather, I wouldn't say for me, but to me, when I think of um, in colonial days, people exchanging threats towards one another, I don't know why I say this, but oftentimes I think of it as being um, something that men would have done. And yes, men would have probably done that more often than women, but when women, but if two women engaged in threats towards one another, I think it probably would have come as a greater shock, as a shock to a greater uh, community. I don't know why I say that, I just do. Maybe it's because of, um, what do you call it, maybe it's because of a, a, a lack of etiquette. I don't know. That's just my view on it. But uh, the night of March 5th saw a fellow by the name of Edward um, Montgomery on duty at the guardhouse next door to the townhouse, only to have his wife Isabella and, the, and a neighbor engage in a tense argument about Boston. The neighbor being Susanna Cathcart. She was the local, okay? So, as I said a moment ago, a local Bostonian woman and a soldier's wife exchanged threats towards each other. So, we've established here that Susanna Cathcart was the local Bostonian. She um, is in a confrontation with Isabella Montgomery. And what does Susanna Cathcart say here in quotation, folks? I hope your husband will be killed. Wow. That's, to me, that might exceed um, the 101 threshold right there. It's very evident that Susanna Cathcart does not like the presence of British troops in Boston, and it's obviously fair to say that Susanna Cathcart is not going to be the type who probably wants to get to know any of the families whom have, uh, occupied, who, whom have occupied Boston it's just not her uh, cup of tea. The night of March 5th, 1770, folks. Here's where we're going to start getting into the heart of it all. So let's pay very careful attention. The night of March 5th, 1770, saw verbal confrontations go beyond, north, go beyond Boston's north end, most notably along Brattle and King Streets, where overall crowds of people exceeded average levels. The reports began to surface where soldiers, and here's where both parties are going to be egging each other on, folks. This isn't one side bullying the other and uh, causing the other one to have their feelings hurt. We're going to start now seeing where both sides are going to be doing things to fuel the fire. So local, or I wouldn't say local, uh, reports now are beginning to surface where soldiers were alleged to be running around waving short swords, or what are known as cutlasses, with slightly curved blades. So they're going around waving these short swords with slightly curved blades. 
that to me is a little scary because you know soldier could mean business you know if you say anything wrong depending on how close that soldier is he could stab you or he could um or he could uh, leave a bad mark on your uh, shoulder you could get a uh, cut on your hand the bottom line is that um if you're going to make a make a remark you better run you better run like hell if you don't want to get caught so the local well and if that was bad enough folks uh, british uh, soldiers had been um, reported to be uh, threatening civilians with fire tongs as for the locals they went about accessing whatever they could obtain along the streets and remember folks it is snowing and it's cold on march 5th 1770 spring is not anywhere near um beginning to take its place in boston so the uh, locals are obtaining just about anything they can get their hands on along the, these streets ice shells shells like oyster shells to hard-packed snowballs which were all intended to be thrown at the troops once they could get near them enough to just start heckling like there's no tomorrow the evening of march 5th 1770 saw Private Hugh White. Remember, Private Hugh White was of the uh, 29th Regiment. That's the same regiment that Matthew Chambers is part of, folks. Private Hugh White is on guard duty outside the Customs House on King Street. Remember, folks, the Customs House? That's where uh, the Customs officials uh, did their um, business uh, in terms of uh, once after officials had Whatever luck they had with obtaining revenue in terms of taxes from the um, townspeople, that's where they would go to um, sort out the monies. And also uh, duties on uh, goods that were brought in from overseas that um, who's in the vessels having um, arrived into uh, Boston's uh, Long Wharf. So Hugh White is on guard duty outside the Customs House on King Street. As the evening went along, the crowd around Private White expanded, and it greatly expanded, folks, to becoming not just large in size, but it became, the people became very vocal. Church bells began ringing, and any time church bells began ringing back then, folks, it was more than just saying, it was more than just the bells ringing as a means of saying, okay, it's time to, uh, time for you all to come inside for uh, church service. When church bells rang, it was more than just church service. It was a way to warn the community or to alert the community that something terrible has happened. So church bells began ringing. Over 50 locals began throwing objects at Private Hugh White, including former slave Crispus Attux. After being knocked down, okay, Private Hugh White got knocked down, folks, by, uh, by an assortment of objects. After he got knocked down, Private White got back up immediately and sought assistance from Captain Thomas Preston. Did Private Hugh White get back up shortly after notifying Captain Preston of what was already taking place? Yes, he did. Captain Preston sent a non-commissioned officer, including six troops from the Grenadier Company within the 29th Regiment of Foot, whom relieved Private White. And the Grenadier Company folks, uh, well, 
there were there was such a thing back then as grenadiers. And believe it or not, folks, gren grenades existed in uh, colonial times. This isn't anything new that surfaced over the last 100 years. So when we think of grenadiers, think of grenades. And those whom were grenadiers were very tall men. In other words, the British ar if the British Army, if they're going to find people or soldiers to throw grenades, they need tall men. Tall men who have large arms who can throw an object long, long distance. So what do you know? It does pay off to have tall men in your uh, regiment, but also uh, men who are tall enough to, to do such things as uh, throwing grenades. The five private soldiers that were called upon by um, Captain Thomas Preston were Hugh Montgomery, John Carroll, William McCauley, William Warren, and Matthew Kilroy. And their names are going to be mentioned um, throughout uh, the rest of the duration of this uh, podcast uh, topic series. Maybe not all of them, but some of them will. The other soldier was Corporal William Wems. All six troops were accompanied by Captain Preston. Let's get a even um, more thorough uh, breakdown or more thorough report of what will now happen. So let's try to put ourselves as if we were alive back on March 5th, 1770. Tensions are high, folks, but let's find out more information. Private White was currently, or I should say he stood um, along the steps of the Customs House. Captain Preston and the six soldiers got past the raucous crowd. However, Captain Preston got um, encountered by a 19-year-old bookseller, none other than Mr. Henry Knox, who would achieve fame not long after. Well, not so much fame, but he would be one of, uh, one day down the road, he'll become one of George Washington's most trusted advisors in the elite inner circle. But in the meantime, Henry Knox is um, a bookseller, and there's nothing wrong with that. Booksellers are very well-respected individuals. But Henry Knox, um, he confronts Captain Preston by saying the following, For God's sake, take care of your men. If they fire, you must die. Wow, that's a strong remark there. The response from Captain Preston was the following in quotes, I'm aware of it. For Henry Knox, he didn't want to see any blood have to be shed. I can't blame Henry Knox for feeling this way. But if Henry Knox did not want to see any blood get shed, what then should Captain Preston have done? To me, Captain Preston should have gotten the, the six troops, including Private White, inside immediately, inside the Customs House immediately, where their lives would not have been in danger. That's not to say that one of the protesters or a couple of protesters could have still thrown objects and broken a window, but had they all been inside, then their lives would have probably been a little bit safer, and now we have to wonder, would, this, would the inevitable perhaps have been avoided? So, for Captain Preston, he was fully aware behind what lied at stake. 
Should the troops use force upon the civilians, which meant sacrificing his own life to ensure that the troops' safety came first, including getting preserved. In other words, Captain Preston did not want to have to use force, but he knew that there was a chance of it. And he knew that if he was going to have to use the force, he knew that it had to be compelling. He knew that it had to be legit. He knew that he was that it would have to be used when all else had failed to um, restore order amongst the unruly crowd. But at the same time, if Captain Preston uses this force in terms of um, having to fire upon the, the uh, crowd, he's going to make sure that... Um, if anybody had to take the blame for it, if anybody had to take the fall for it, it, it would rather be him than his own men because, um, you know, as a commander, your job is to look after those below you. But at the same time, if if um, if one is to point the blame at you, sometimes, to me, sometimes it might be better to have it on the commander versus the troops below you. But that's just my take on it. Once the troops arrived to the customs house steps or the front main entrance, they went about lodging their muskets to fixing their bayonets. Instead of troops standing in a straight line, they arranged themselves into a semicircular structure in the midst of facing mobs or the unruly crowds whose numbers now stood between 300 to 400 people. Although Captain Preston verbally told the crowds to disperse, the warning was not adhered to as protesters continuously moved around the soldiers and harassed them by yelling fire to spitting at them, including throwing snowballs and other objects. Spitting? Throwing? Is it fair to say that these protesters are just flat out asking for trouble? I'd say they are. You know, you know they have a right to voice their opposition, but... Throwing stuff? Is that going to really solve the problem? I don't think so. And again, we see that even in today's modern world. That's a whole other story. Innskeeper Richard Palms had a um, short, thick stick known as a cudgel on him. He went as far as asking Captain Preston if the soldiers' muskets were loaded. Captain Preston said yes, but would not but would not uh, order any firing unless he authorized it. So in other words, he's telling this innkeeper, Mr. Palms, that look, the soldiers' muskets are loaded, but how far do you want to go with creating any more tension compared to what already has been taking place? Did a protester uh, throw an object which ultimately struck to knocking down one of Captain Preston's troops? Yes, Private Hugh Montgomery got struck by, an ob by the object hurled at him, which resulted in dropping his musket. Private Montgomery got right back up with his musket and vehemently shouted the following, Damn you! Fire! The musket, his musket fired, he fired his musket right away into the hostile crowd. And by firing his musket right away into the hostile crowd, what was missing? No formal command by Captain Preston to
to officially go about firing upon his orders. Innskeeper Richard Palm swung his thick stick, or I should say his cudgel, at Private Montgomery by hitting his arm, only to, to do the same upon Captain Preston. Shortly after Private Montgomery fired into the crowd, other uh, results um, followed right away where the other soldiers took up their arms and began firing, which occurred, well, I should say they began firing, and the firing which occurred was, wasn't was uh, disciplinary, meaning Captain Preston had not assembled the troops into a linear, or I should say a straight line, where the command or formal order to fire would have been more practica practicable, or I should say realistic. So in other words, that... Um, famous work that uh, what's-his-face Henry Pelham had done but yet gave the work to Paul Revere and Paul Revere drastically altered it and and of course they everybody gave Paul Revere all the accolades for it you know we were led to believe for years that that the uh, British troops fired into the crowd the crowd was just assembling uh, in a very peaceful non-hostile manner we were all led to believe that Captain Thomas Preston did the following. Troops, present your arms. Make ready. Take aim. Fire! That's not how it happened, folks. What we don't see in that uh, famous um, that famous piece of um, artwork done on that um, copper uh, sheet, what we don't see are <laughs> those whom are being shot at or those whom have those whom are um, reeling in the after effects of, of the uh, shootings, what we didn't see are objects. We didn't see any objects being thrown on the opposite side at the British soldiers. What Paul Revere wanted, um, wanted the rest of the uh, American public at that time to be convinced was that, was that those whom assembled uh, peacefully to petition their uh, complaints about the presence of British soldiers in Boston, uh, Paul Revere wanted them to to be viewed as um, those whom had been oppressed left and right, and weren't allowed to really voice their opposition. Whereas the British, um, the presence of the British Army on uh, American soil was meant to represent an elephant who whom knew no boundaries. That's just my take on it. But as much as we would like to believe that innocent people did lose their lives or innocent people were shot at, we do need to be reminded that even uh, those whom protested not only put their own lives in danger, but they also put the lives of the soldiers in danger. And they were warned by Captain Thomas Preston to, to disperse, but did they listen to the warning? No. Did Captain Preston tell... Uh, uh, Mr. Palms, uh, the innkeeper, that that the troops' uh, muskets were loaded. Yes, that to me should have been a warning right there that, okay, if the muskets are loaded, then maybe you should refrain from uh, hurling objects and you should also refrain from even assaulting a soldier. The soldiers had fired in, in, in an irregular series of shots. I should say the soldiers had fired an irregular series of shots, which resulted in um, hitting, or I should say, striking down 11 men. Three men died immediately, folks. 
they are the these three men are the following: rope maker Samuel Gray, mariner James uh, Caldwell, and Crispus Attucks, whom was a sailor, including having uh, served as an employee aboard whaling ships. Also among the casualties were 17-year-old Samuel Maverick, an apprenticed ivory turner whom was learning to create objects through cutting, sanding, just a few of the many ways to go about um, creating unique objects. Uh, Mr. Maverick got struck by a musket ball while in the back of, of the crowd, and he died the following morning on March the 6th. The fifth casualty involved Irish immigrant Patrick Carr, who got shot in the abdomen. And how ironic that he lived uh, two weeks after initially being shot, but yet sadly died uh, two weeks later, after, um, after uh, March 5th, 1770. Well, folks, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and we have gotten the full-scale effect of what really happened on March 5th, 1770, that is, what happened on the actual night of March 5th, 1770, including uh, the lead-up to what had happened uh, from the previous uh, podcast uh, episode when we talked about uh, Christopher Sidere's death uh, from February 22nd of 1770. So a lot of things have happened in the three-week span that led up to the inevitable occurring on March uh, 5th, 1770, and uh, historians do know that uh, there were British soldiers who had said just hours before uh, the shooting, there were soldiers who had said that tonight there will be bloodshed. In other words, this was going to be a night where there prob probably would not be any um, turning back. In other words, whatever peace did exist it's now going to um, take a drastic turn for the worse. And it may not come back to like what it once was before. Well, when we're on the air again next, we're going to learn how uh, the town of Boston moves forward after March 5th. In other words, we're going to have to figure out if, in fact, an investigation takes place. And then we're going to have to learn um, how soon a trial will begin. We're going to have to learn um, whether or not those whom fired into the crowd, being the soldiers whose names we uh, learned about, uh, will they be placed in jail? Will, t will Captain Preston be in jail until a trial takes place? So we still have a lot of um, unknown um, answers um, that we haven't come up, that we haven't been able to figure out just yet, but we will be figuring them out here soon. Thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all here soon, uh, wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.